Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Hello Steve, keeping well? Hi Russell and welcome to all our listeners. I am doing very well, thank you very much. And I've been particularly blown away and loving the response to our recent episode with Mary Meyer. Yes, me too. I think Mary's words really resonated, didn't they, with teachers and leaders. And hopefully it's inspired more people to refocus on the things that really matter in schools. Absolutely. And with so much to do in our schools, I think it's always important to be brave and to just step back and ask, why are we actually doing this on a regular basis? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So many of our guests on the podcast tend to be head teachers, leaders, or like Mary, consultants or authors working in education. So it's really refreshing today to be talking to a classroom teacher doing the daily grind. And we're welcoming Jane Clapp to the podcast today. Now, Jane is a teacher based in Essex and someone I discovered on Twitter some time ago. Jane's one of those teachers who enjoys sharing things that work in her own classroom and is always really supportive of others too. Jane has some unique perspectives on teaching, thanks to her previous career as a physiotherapist, and we'll explore this in depth later on. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for asking me. It's exciting. Oh, it's a pleasure. And hi, Jane. Jane, we'd like to kick off with a generic question. And could you tell us a bit about your teaching career so far, including the year groups you taught in, and why you made the transition from physio to teacher? Yeah, of course. I think it's really important to talk about this because a lot of people probably wonder, you know, why would you change from a career? Because I really loved being a physiotherapist, so it wasn't anything to do with not being happy at all. But I was in an abusive relationship for most of my 20s, and I think when I finally left that, I got to the stage where the physical injuries fade quite quickly so you know your bruises heal your burns and everything else they heal quite quickly and for me you forget about that but it was more the emotional implications that he left me with I think I got to the stage where I found it really hard to let go of that inner voice and that voice of saying you're not good enough and it didn't matter how many people who I really respected in my profession told me how brilliant I was, you know, physios or consultants and doctors and nurses, it was always there and I got to the point where I thought I either carry on and get over it, which I didn't know if I could, or I try something else. I'd always thought about primary teaching. It was always something that I'd kind of yearned for, but I would have been the worst teacher when I was young because I wasn't confident and I would have been terrible. So I had always thought about it and I'd always enjoyed that part of my physiotherapy. So educating undergraduates and helping carers and educating. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to go for it. So I'd researched different ways into teaching and decided that a school-based route would be the best for me. So I went to an interview for my local skit and I thought, right, I'm going to go for the interview. And if I get in, then brilliant, this is my destiny, I'm going to do it. And if I don't, I just need to get over it. And I remember being absolutely terrified for my interview because everyone who went had so much school experience. They were teaching assistants or higher level teaching assistants and I thought oh my goodness what on earth am I doing went in did it and then within about two hours of my interview they rung me and I thought oh gosh here we go and the lady was so lovely and I think it was that someone saw something in me and believed in me and she said I think you're going to be the most incredible teacher and I haven't looked back and I think that was the first 
stage in my getting over that situation and teaching has been like life changing for me it's just it's changed so much about what I think of myself and kind of that building that confidence I think it's been brilliant so I trained in year one which I think is the most incredible year to train in because you get such a good grounding in everything obviously you have lots of the foundational skills the phonics I mean to learn all that in your trainee year is just brilliant because you can use it in everything else you have to be really good at modeling stuff because they're five and six years old and if you don't model it really well it's all going to go wrong logistically in the organization of a classroom obviously in a year one classroom that's paramount and they make the most incredible progress as well I think it's a really understated year group in primary education I think it's actually the, the most vital one in a lot of ways mm-hmm. then I did my NQT year in a year four class which I absolutely love that's been my favorite year to teach so far it was almost like you know you have those years that the stars just align and I think I was the right teacher for them and they were the right class for me and then I spent a few years in year two which again I really enjoyed it's a lovely year group and then this year I'm in year five fantastic thank you for sharing that journey and thank you so much for the honesty and openness about uh, your transition from from physio into teaching I, I just think that's a really inspiring story I've kind of as I've gone through life realized that it's actually really important because there's people going through the same thing that I was all those years ago and if someone at the time was more aware of domestic abuse if someone had spotted you know some of the warning signs because I think there can be a stereotype about the kind of person that's in those situations whereas you know I was a professional I'm an intelligent person I was holding down a professional job but there were little signs that you know things weren't quite right and I think it's so important just to look out for your colleagues or just know that if you are in that situation you can get yourself out of it and be successful. Thanks Jane and if there are people who are listening and that aspect of things is sort of resonating for them are you happy for them to message you or whatever after they've listened to the podcast? Oh, absolutely. That's brilliant. So you mentioned that you've you've taught across the key stages there. And I agree with what you have to say about year one. I think it's the hardest year group to teach, but just amazing. Um, like you say, the progress they make when, when you get it right. I know you spent a while in year two. And you, as you say, you went up to year five. And I remember talking to you about that on Twitter and you being like, oh, slightly terrified, but excited at the same time. So what are your reflections now of having done both key stages? What have you preferred about those different age ranges? This is my first kind of, the journey into upper key stage two so I was terrified because although you think oh it's only the primary curriculum it's absolutely fine to teach some of the the concepts are such a big jump from year four to five isn't there especially in maths and I thought oh goodness I've gone from key stage one working within two numbers to that massive jump but I do think that it's so important to take a lot of key stage one experience with you into key stage two i remember a lot of people said to me it's very different it's very grown up and actually they're nine and ten and they still love the magic you know i still write their little notes to pretend that someone's asked us to do something and we still have an element of play and i think that's really important in primary education and there's so much of key stage one that is so vital in key stage two 
if you think about the progression of skills and it's that zooming out that I think we're starting to do more in teaching but we don't always do it enough and it's not about being a year two teacher or a year five teacher or a year one teacher it's kind of knowing where a child is on that spectrum of a skill or a piece of knowledge so you are skilled to kind of intervene and help them along it so I really find in year five that I can use a lot of what I know from Key Stage 1 to unpick kind of where that understanding has gone a little bit awry. The other thing that's been really nice this year is that I taught this class before, so I taught them in year two. All right. And that's been amazing for me as a, a teacher because you can be really reflective. You can think, oh, you know, what did I teach well? And then, oh, I've don't think I taught that particularly well because they're not great at that like double p's and double t's like double consonants for (laughs) adding suffixes I don't think I did that very well and what's been really good is how much they remember from year two and their memories of their learning Um, I think the thing that I love about year five is that key stage one is very much you know building those foundations and it can feel sometimes that you're modeling 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 and it's quite a a passive process whereas I think in year five you just feel like you become more of a facilitator to them and they're starting to be empowered to use their own foundational skills to become their own learners and I really love that you know you can have conversations with them about their writing that's quite mature and I was talking to a girl the other day and she wanted to write a setting description about like a high street and she was said she said I really want it to be all shut up and closed and that it's all kind of dead and she said I don't know how to explain that and I asked her I said what what are your options like what can you use to to describe that setting and she said oh you know I could use adjectives I was like yeah and she said I could use a simile I was like yeah and she said I could use a metaphor and I was like yeah and I was like woohoo because we've been working on those and she just had the most mature conversation where she made that really active choice you know and I think that author's voice and developing that is just so amazing you know we've been working on these things called soundscapes all year where showing not telling so we use a sense more often sound because it works better or smell sometimes work and at the beginning of the year I gave them a picture I and mean, it could be like a, a bike collision with a car or a dad cooking or like a burglary or something a robbery and they tell the story through the scent so they either tell it through the smells or they tell it through the sounds um, and you just get the most amazing results you know like with the bike one you could have the giggles of pleasure the whirring of the chain the roar of an engine the screech of the brakes the scream of a mother's concern and I love that they start to apply that stuff in their writing. Like you can really see them develop that change of role slightly more towards facilitating them. I really love the, the more mature conversations you can have with them. Yeah, nice. I've been thinking about when Steve and I worked together because he had been key stage two and then did the drop down to year two, Steve. And I remember being quite almost envious of you that you were getting that experience that I never, never got. I'm do a bit of cover down in key stage one and early years now which is great but I didn't ever teach there Steve I'm curious about whether some of the things Jane's talking about resonate with you as well oh I could completely relate to the whole conversation then and actually 
I remember when I, I was in year six and I, we were sat in the staff room and our head teacher used to announce, you are in this class, you are in this class. And I was sitting there pretty cocksure that I was going to be in year five or six again. So very laid back. And then I heard my name come up really early. I thought, I wasn't even listening to what year group I'm going into right now. And it was year two. And I must say that no matter how much I've, I always loved upper key stage two and i'll never never change because i just love the connection within the transition to secondary that you can get there but i adored year two they were the most when you said magical i totally get that no matter what year group you're in you should always be setting their magical and high expectations and children are children at the end of the day but year two the, the moldable minds that they were and i really agree that you spend so much of your time modeling and modeling some more but it's such a joyous occasion when you can see that progress and it's swift. It's so mm. swift. And, and then you see the, the personalities are developing as well. And they're, they're becoming mini people that are just getting bigger and they take on so much that to be given a chance again to do year two, I would love that. Absolutely. And I also had a really similar experience like you from year two to five, I had year three to year six. And I remember banging on the head teacher's door because Russell had taught my class. I always call him my class because he taught them in year four. And I, I just went in at the end of year five, end of the year five and said, please give me this class back because you know them so well as personalities and you know everything about them. You're just desperate to get back in there and A, consolidate what, what hasn't gone well because that's definitely something I taught them in my NQT year, year three. So I thought, cool, goodness knows what they got from there. But you know, when you really just they felt like a family again and it was like getting my own little group back and I was so protective over them in that regard but it is a beautiful experience whether you're teaching key stage one or two but yeah I do have that special spot for year two now for sure and like you said I think the really nice thing about teaching a, a class again is that they they still have those same personalities they're just a bit more mature and I think that's gorgeous mm. and I love the fact that they they feel so comfortable with you really quickly so you don't have that time where you're trying to get to know them and they're getting to know you exactly like you said it feels like a family straight away and it's that familiarity and that love that you already have mm. it's so gorgeous when you you know have a class again it's really lovely and seeing them children go through other teachers in the meantime and how they've adapted as well. They're so resilient and adaptable. It's just beautiful to see. It is lovely. Yeah. Um, so Jane, now every teacher has stuff that's important to them, really, or central to their learning and teaching approaches. Could you tell us about some of your core aspects within your practice? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, perhaps the most irritating thing for people to work with me, is that I'm such a a why person I've always been the same like when I was younger you know I always ask well why why are we doing this because it's that context that I think I really need I sometimes think in teaching and I know Mary might have talked a lot about this that there's things that people do because it's just always been done and you think well why do we do this like what impact does it have on the children and their learning because teachers are there to teach and we're there to assess and we're there to help children reach their full potential and I think anything that takes teachers away from that needs to be really carefully quality controlled and it's like well why are we asking teachers to do this because ideally everything that teachers are asked to do should be because it has an impact on the children so I think you know when you have really good leaders 
who get rid of all that rubbish is like probably the worst word in the world but you know what I mean like just to to skim off all that unnecessary stuff because it's so important that teachers are given as much time of their time as possible to teach and to adapt their teaching to, to be accessible to every learner and I do find it quite frustrating when you are expected to do things that actually don't really have a, a reason or if you think about why it's crazy that we still do it and so much time is spent on it I think that's something that I find really hard to deal with but I'm really lucky in my school because my um, uh, leadership my head teacher they're so sensible with things and they're really happy to have those conversations which is brilliant one of the biggest things for me is around abilities and ability grouping when I think back to being a physio you know I would never have looked at a person's notes and thought okay they're 90 years old they have you know been walking with a frame for a few years the physio next door told me that there's probably a very little chance of them walking you know I would never have gone to them and kind of thought oh well I'm not going to bother even trying to get you to walk because you know I might as well just work on sitting balance with you and I find it really hard to think that we sometimes are expected to have this preconceived idea of what children will be able to do and again luckily the tide seems to be really changing with that because I think if teachers do that if teachers think and it's sometimes with the best intention so I think teachers think I'm going to spend all this time creating all these different tasks for different children and they're honestly trying to make the learning accessible but by doing that they're just widening the gaps and kind of not helping so I think that skill of being able to zoom out and know the whole progression of skills from the very early stages right up until you know GCSE A level where are we going with this and thinking about children on a journey and not just in your classroom but thinking like I'm part of a bigger picture for a child it isn't just about year three or year four or year five it's this is a child that we need to get through to GCSEs and hopefully A-levels and become lifelong learners it's that skill of knowing that so well that you can create or find tasks that are really rich so you have that capacity to extend them so you've got that challenge there but you also are able to scaffold them to make them accessible to everybody and I think sometimes when we still talk about scaffolds I always think when I was talking to shoot my student last year I said you know we need to make sure our scaffolds are almost like buoyancy aids it's helping them keep afloat is probably the wrong word because it sounds like they're really struggling but we need to keep them up with the learning of the lesson but aside from that lesson we then need to be you know really in intervening to make them stronger swimmers so the next time they don't need such a big buoyancy aid or they don't need that buoyancy aid and it's that kind of juggling of that that I think is really important for children and it's not the scaffold isn't like an anchor like pulling them down and making them sink it's it needs to be afloat it needs to help them keep up and I think that's really important to me I think I I've never been comfortable with that idea of talking about children in ability groupings or differentiating by task some of the things that you see or hear about teachers doing and I genuinely think it's, it is with the best intentions but it's actually having the opposite effect of what they want it's actually widening those gaps rather than narrowing it a lot of 
doing that comes with the culture that you set up in your classroom so again if I think back to being a physio which I definitely think makes me a better teacher when you're a physio you know you're going into people's situations and they've had like a life-changing event like an accident and stuff and you are going in they don't know you from Adam and you're kind of asking them to do things that are really scary and are painful and it's really vital to build a rapport with them so quickly that you get them to get on board with you and they trust you and that you say I believe in you and I know you can do this and this is going to help I think that's what you need to do in your classroom you know we ask children every day to do things that are scary and that are getting them out of their comfort zones and I think if we can create that classroom culture of I really believe you I'm here and getting them to believe in themselves and know that you know mistakes are fine and I think that's really really important and it's it's important for that helping all children achieve yeah that's beautiful I didn't tell you before the podcast started but my my mum's a physio oh amazing as I've listened to you I can really think back to a lot of conversations we had over the years and I can remember as a kid how I could god this probably wouldn't happen now but you know if I was off school for any reason I could go with her to a patient's at the houses and little old ladies would give me chocolate it was lovely um but I could see I from an early age how my mum had that belief in people and how she couldn't just say oh poor Dorothy she's old she's frail she's not going to be able to get out of her seat properly like I could see that expectation my mum had for her patients and how she had this really ambitious vision of where they could get to so it's really resonating for me now some of the things you've you've said Steve did you want to come in there yeah I was just thinking now um, because I don't talk about it too much Mm. but my mum had a brainstem stroke four years ago so she was locked in completely locked in and I remember as an adult sitting with the consultants and specialists and they will go and turn off a life support because she was getting no better blah 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 and you think there was this glass ceiling i get it, it was the worst thing that could ever happen there was a cut off of nothing's going to happen with your mum she's a vegetable basically better and they always kept saying it if it was you you would want it turned off right and we didn't know anything better but um then my mum was toe flicked the day it was going to happen and turn in terms of turning off and it went on but my mum's now managed to get home and all right, she's still, she can't talk. She can make sound, but can't talk and she's limited. But her physio team who are there are so awe-inspiring because they turn up every week and it's the tiniest gains, like just flicker of a hand and moving. And she's getting towards trying to stand up herself now. You think she's overcome so many barriers and been written off time and time again. But you think physios, they seem to be inherently positive and <laughs> there's there's nothing that a physio thinks they like, I don't see the team we get to know them so well after three years at home my mum now that they come around weekly I think they're always so so positive and so you're gonna do this you're going to do this and I think translate that into a classroom and that's kind of what you're doing and then yeah why put a ceiling on a child when you don't need to because everyone's got different strengths and development points as well so you never know what what the barrier is going to be but if you work it together and it is that positive love of you're going to do this and I'm going to help facilitate you to do this I think without that if we didn't have this home physio team that come around my mum probably wouldn't be the person she's getting back to now and all right it could be the end of the road now that she might have hit her top but they never say that and they're always like keep going keep going even with a little threats of well if you don't make progress we might have to discharge you it kind of gives you a spare on in this really (laughs) reverse psychology way but they are such a good team and I can just imagine 
physios out there have all got this lovely mindset of you are going to do this and this is how I'm going to help you do this. Yeah, I mean, what a queen your mum is. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm so happy that she's doing really well. But I think it is something that's inherent to physiotherapists. I think it's like a, a tenacity. It's like you're really tenacious and you just really believe all the time that people can regain as much function as they can. And I think a lot of that comes from like I was talking earlier, that spectrum of, you know, they have such a deep knowledge of every physical skill. So if you think about walking, you know, you can track walking back to standing balance and stepping and sitting balance and sitting to standing and lying to sitting and rolling and then lying. And if teachers can do that, which a lot of, I mean, I am so inspired by teachers that I see who have that such in-depth knowledge of a skill that you know exactly where a child is and you can so skillfully intervene I think that's so vital and I think that's something that it's that tenacity that we need to have you know we need to believe that every single child can learn because they can I used to think that you know all learning is almost like finding the key that unlocks it for a child and some children are really lucky that they have like master keys and any key will really unlock that learning but for those children that just take a little bit longer you just need to find that right key and it's do we give them enough time to find that a lot of the time because they're sometimes like your your deepest thinkers you know that they because they've had to really think about concepts in lots of different ways and all these different visuals they almost have a really deep understanding they just need a different they're just different aren't they they just need a little bit more time and we don't always give them that something listening to you both speak there that really strikes me with the physio analogy is there's this physical journey, but there's this real mental journey as well, isn't there? And I think any form of injury, and I've been really blessed in my life, I haven't had anything really serious. The worst I had was a dislocation in my shoulder a couple of years ago. And just thinking back to the phone calls with my mum throughout that journey, because I had a bit of physio, but it was through a lot of it was through that first lockdown. So it was a bit limited. But it was actually the phone calls with my mum that lifted me on those days when I was actually really despairing and I wasn't playing football anymore and it was locked down and I was frustrated and everything was difficult and I was getting the train to work and needing lifts. And it was her sort of saying, it's just little things we can do to make that bit better. And those little, like, what, just get on the floor and do this exercise for, you know, over the phone. But that psychological journey, again, I really see the parallel with children in the classroom. Someone that when they're thinking, I can't do this, as Steve said, has that like, unfaltering belief in them that you will do this you will get through this it will be better and sort of helps them visualize a better time yeah it really resonates for me you must have seen that so much as a physio and as a teacher yeah and I think as a teacher it's thinking it's me like what am I not doing right you know it's never them it's never the children it's always you know how can I change and what can I do to alter my practice to help them more I think that's a really important narrative to have in teaching it's not thinking oh they they will never learn that they can't do it it's what am I doing what how can I change myself being really reflective I think that's really really important yeah 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 so you talk beautifully there Jane about various ways that being a physio has informed your teaching and I love this parallel now I'm going to be thinking about it constantly I think but one thing you've thought a lot about I know is this idea of disability and your blog on that which we'll share again when the podcast goes out I really really liked and kind of resonated with me tell us more about your views about this concept of disability or ability and how again that has filtered into your teaching 
Yes, so I think that from a really young age, we are almost bombarded with an idea of what normal is. And it really gives children who then become adults almost like a really false sense of a human prototype. And it's like, this is the prototype of a human and this is what you should look like, walk like, talk like. And I think if you don't fit into that, how on earth would you feel? And I, it's sometimes hard to relate to that because obviously as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl, I always saw myself uh, represented in the world around me and I always saw myself as that prototype. And I think quite rightly at the moment, there's so much talk about diversity and I think that's such a brilliant movement at the moment and it's so vital but I sometimes think that we almost forget that that does include people with disabilities and you know it should be the right of every person to see themselves represented in our world I think it's I think she's called Dr Bishop she's a professor in America and she coined the phrase books should be mirrors windows and sliding glass doors and I think that's such an important thing to think about because you know you should see yourself reflected in a books and in visuals that are around your classroom you know they should be mirrors they should be windows that you can look into other people's lives because building that empathy is really important too and I think we can take such a vital role as teachers to getting rid of this idea of a, of a prototype and when I was a physio I think I saw that so much of the world is set up for able people um, and I use able really with my little air quotation marks because everyone is able they just do it in different ways but it's what society has decided is the normal way of doing it that causes the problem and I think if we didn't have that false sense of what a prototype is would disability even exist because a lot of someone being disabled is not because they can't do things like people can do things they can mobilize with wheelchairs they can mobilize with walking aids they can hear with hearing loops they can speak with you know computer assisted devices but they're disabled by society and the systems that are in society and, you know, steps everywhere or uh, different things. And I saw this picture actually a couple of days ago that was about picnic benches in Finland. And you think of a normal picnic bench and you think, right, well, they have got like their fixed benches have they either side and kind of the ends are kind of stubby. And if you were a wheelchair user, you can't really use a picnic bench comfortably because you can't get yourself into a good position to eat your picnic lunch. And these picnic benches in Finland, they've just extended the table bit. So the bench is stopped and then the table carried on. And you think it's such a simple idea, but how crazy that our world doesn't even think like that, that we've created all these kind of systems that are just disabling people. And I think as teachers, we have such a privileged position to start deconstructing that idea of a prototype. And I think it's vital that we do. And as much as, of course, it's important to diversify your books and your visuals and have everybody represented in your classroom and in your school, you know, it really needs to be embedded as a culture and not a thing that you do because it's a certain month or you think, you know, oh, 
quickly I've got a child who has a hearing aid, I better make sure I've got a book with a hearing aid. We have to make sure that we don't point out people as diverse because actually we're all diverse and diversity is just being different and we're all different. If I sat next to another blonde-haired, blue-eyed person, we're still really different and I think we need to talk about diversity being difference and that it's all okay and actually there's no such thing as normal and celebrate that and I think as teachers we can do that books is a really obvious way and it really excites me there's so many amazing books about disabilities at the moment and again I think we have to be really careful with what we select so we don't want people with disabilities to be framed as needing to be saved or having some kind of weakness it's just they're just living their life because they are and actually they can do everything that anyone else can do they just do it differently and I, I sometimes think that we don't appreciate that sometimes and we really need to be careful with how we talk about disabilities and present it because actually it is just a different way of doing it they're actually very able they just do it differently and when I think about our classroom you know well you want to make it fully inclusive but again do we unwittingly place those barriers like the picnic bench do we do that in our classroom with our learning I sometimes think you know do we make it harder for all children to succeed because we unwittingly put barriers in that we might not even think about if we can free teachers up and skill them up to know the progression of skills and knowledge so well and to know how to scaffold and extend and kind of lessen that muddiness of learning and make it really clear we hopefully can make such an inclusive classroom that just gets rid of so many barriers for learning I mean I I see quite a lot of people talking about outcomes and how you assess learning and quite often, you know, how often do we assess learning by writing? If you're always assessing a child on how well they're writing, then are your best writers, your best geographers and your best scientists and your best historians? That isn't necessarily always true. And I think, are we giving every single child the chance to excel and to reach their potential? Because unwittingly, we are putting barriers in place. And I think something that really resonated with me a while ago was that I went on some dementia training, so for people with Alzheimer's. And they said that when you talk to someone with dementia or Alzheimer's, they almost have a stop clock of processing. So you go in and you say, you know hi Dolly you know how are you today and the stop clock of processing starts so they think okay you've asked me this and they start thinking but because as, as humans we find silence really tricky and we find that awkward rather than waiting and just dealing with that silence and thinking she will probably answer in it might take her two minutes but she's just processing what you've asked her we fill the gap we say Oh, it's a lovely day today, isn't it? And that stop clock of thinking and processing starts again. So again, you have that silence, and then you fill it again. Then you say, "Oh, did you? You know, have you have you seen anyone today?" And again, it starts again. And I think I used to do that all the time in my NQT year. You have children that just need a bit more thinking time, and you'll ask them a question, and then that stopwatch starts. But how often do we just give them time to think? 
instead of interjecting with helpful questions to try and prompt them thinking more. And I think there's a big difference when you know your class about a child who genuinely has no idea. You know, you can see that panic on their little their faces and you, you know those children. But how often do you just give them time to process? If you can make your classroom truly inclusive and your practice truly inclusive, you know, we can build such an empathy in our children and we can help them succeed and I I always think that we should pass on our world as a better place to the next generation as what we've received it and I'm not convinced that we do a great job of that that our generation but our world is in really safe hands with our children because they are just brilliant you know they're kind they're resilient they are empathetic but we need to educate them to make the world better and if we can break the idea of prototype and break the idea of what is normal and just celebrate that everyone is different then hopefully they will build worlds with better picnic benches for everyone what a quote <laughs> here here i was just sitting there thinking what a stunning reflective sound bite that is that's like a ted talk in itself there, that's, that's, that's well, awesome. i have a little rant every now and then <laughs> Loved it. Oh, could could have listened to that forever. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And I'm um, possibly digressing a little bit from what we're chatting about. <laughs> um, this is still could be linked to your physio background because it's clear on your Twitter timeline that you actually love teaching anything linked to biology. And when you look at the digestive system, bones, uh, muscles, frog spawn, <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, how does this interest show up in your teaching and how do you foster that curiosity with the children that you are teaching? I don't think it's hard when you're a naturally curious person. Like mm. I am that person who was as why and and I think children are the best vehicles for that because they are so naturally curious. And so they'll ask you a question. And I sometimes think, oh, I don't know, let's let's find out and I keep on going back to this but again if you are such a skilled teacher that you know the progression of something to the nth degree it gives you that flexibility to do that because you kind of know where you can go but you can relate it to what they want to learn about so I definitely think that just in general I'm a really curious person and I've always been fascinated by the human body ever since I was really young like I just remember being so fascinated by it I find it quite crazy that we all have one we all have a body but how much do we actually know about it you know generally people don't know about their bodies so I think that for me I teach children you know random facts or I might you know teach them so I'm I try to get them to name all the main muscle groups and so I don't go into innovations of like nerve roots or anything <laughs> but if you think about well-being and for their health it's actually really important because a lot of people have grown up not really knowing much about their bodies and I think that's really really important and I think just having that you know lighting the fire of their curiosity is so vital for children and and just giving them the time to ask questions and and teaching them how they find out the answers love it you can either teach my children or you can have a job if you want to move down to Devon <laughs> just love your mindset about teaching so Jane sort of coming towards the end I, I didn't mention at the start but I know that you're absolutely not someone to blow your own trumpet and I know when I invited you on your initial response was probably a wave of sort of terror mixed with a bit of excitement but you went on to say that you are trying to be braver and do more stuff like this where's that come from why why are you trying to be a bit more brave with this sort of thing at the moment I mean I'm never going to be 
a confident person like ever and I I've always been an observer I think so I'm I'm very much if you put me in a room of people I'll, I'll be the person who's silent in the corner but I'll be watching everything and then I might give like one little comment at the end and people go whoa like where did she come from but I think again it's like a personal journey for me is that you know I left a really horrible situation and that has left how do you explain it it's kind of left baggage is the wrong word but you know what I mean it's 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 made me a quite an underconfident person I think I'll always be an overthinker I'll always worry that I don't know what I'm talking about or that people aren't interested like this feels really overindulgent to have me talking for so long because I think when you've spent quite a few years trying to not have any imprint on the world because if you do you're pulled up for it I think it's then really hard to suddenly have the confidence to speak out and I think I have got to the stage where you just need to be brave don't you like I've been very lucky that I've always had the most amazing people in my life who are my cheerleaders and they are so supportive and they will say you know you're doing really well you know go you and obviously my mum was like a massive part of that and when I suddenly lost her it just rocks your world and I think it's got to the point where you think you sometimes have to be your own cheerleader you know you have to be that person who just believes in yourself because if you don't then you know how can I spout about believing in children and then being brave and taking these giant leaps every day when I'm too terrified to do things so I'm really grateful to you both for even asking me and thinking that I am interesting enough to to do this <laughs> well we're really really glad we did Jane and we've got full faith in you and you've been a real inspiration to talk to today so thank you for your time and your reflections I think people will really connect to so much that you've talked about today thank you so much I've really enjoyed it Thank you for your beautiful conversation. Don't shoot the deputy.